This is Still Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It's me, hi, Stephanie Butnick, here with my co-host, my colleague, my co-conspirator, Liel Leibovitz. Hello and shalom to you. So I actually texted you yesterday to ask how you say your last name, and it's Leibovitz. Well, technically it's Leibovitz, (laughs) but I figured I would give you the American Friends discount. You could say Leibovitz. (laughs) But I I think it's nice that after eight years of podcasting, people can still surprise you. Yeah. There's still new things to learn about each other. Because it's really awkward, like, you know, you meet someone and you're not really sure about how to say their last name and then some time passes by and then you're not going to ask, by the way, I know it's been some years now, but how do you say your weird and very Jewy last name? So it's okay. I get it. Well, Leah Leibovitz, we have an amazing new host joining us in just a few weeks and we'll have more on that in a little bit. But today on the show, we are bringing you an interview I did with Natasha Feldman, aka Nosh with Tosh, who joins us to talk about her new cookbook. We're also bringing you the latest dispatch from our series Across the Jew SA, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. This month, our producers Robert Scaramuccia and Quinn Waller travel to Portland, Maine, to share the heartwarming story of how Jews made Maine a home for themselves and for others. But first, Liel, should we, should we like give them a hint about who our, our new host is? I'm so excited. So we have spent a lot of time contemplating the question of who could join us in this year, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. And really, the more we thought about it, the more we thought there is really only one person. There's only one person. And when we called that person, we said, we're really sorry you have no choice but to say yes, because you're literally the only person we are considering here. And that person said yes. Now, before we welcome host numero tres, host Mispar Shalosh here to this very small minion of ours. We figured it'd be a little bit fun. We can't just go ahead and say, oh, it's going to be this person. We want to we have some fun. So while we were very excited about this host, we, we still had, you know, some rabbinic questions, some halachic questions, if you will. We really needed to find out if that person we're thinking about was qualified to sit here on, once again, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. So we called up this lovely person who we love and admire and said, can you still recall your bar or bat mitzvah portion? And on the spot, like a pro, like a rabbinic ilui, like a <laughs> real, true genius of a fantastic lineage, that person just rocked it. Have a listen. Amen. Wow. Uh, could could you could you guess who it is? <laughs> I'm honestly still impressed because I don't know that much of mine anymore. Um, and the time I did sing it on the show, someone wrote in to correct me and said I was doing it wrong, said I had remembered it wrong all these years. And words. I'm sure someone will also write in to correct our new host, but they won't know who that person is until we introduce them in just a few weeks. So, Liel, until then, it's us holding down the fort. What is new with you? So you live in the city, and so you know that one of the most amazing, charming things about living in New York City 
is how easy it is, if you so wish, to very rapidly lose all relation with reality. To really kind of like go into your shell and like live life in such a bizarre, stupid way that you actually don't remember or know how to do like basic human things that people living virtually anywhere else in the world know how to do. I walk wherever I need to get to because I live in Manhattan and I'm also an an Israeli male. So I keep a car in the city and I I drive my own car, which means I have not been on public transportation (laughs) in probably 14 years, right? The other day, I'm talking to a friend and complaining that I have to be in this here studio in Midtown early. And the friend says, oh, you know, there's literally a bus door to door from like down the block from you to the tablet offices. And I say, a bus? That sounds like a very romantic idea. I shall take the bus. And I felt like, you know, Bertie Wooster in the Woodhouse novels, like saying, Jeeves, when's the bus? Uh, I, I had no clue where to find this mythical beast. So this morning I left very early and decided that I am going to take the bus. I felt like a kid going on a field trip. The first thing that occurred to me right away is that I actually had no freaking clue where the bus was. Uh, which was easy enough. You know, I was walking up and down Riverside and eventually saw a post, which by the way, did you know this is how they get the bus? It's like a post and a little sign with a number. Yes, yes. The M5. Yes, I am familiar with the concept of a bus stop. Uh, But then it also occurred to me, I didn't know how long the bus takes or (laughs) how to pay for the bus because, I mean, there were tokens when I moved to New York and I don't think there are tokens anymore. Maybe Metro cards, maybe you could do it on your phone. I'm completely clueless. But then a different thought comes around, which is this. Last time I took the bus, I was 14. And this was Israel in the 90s, sort of the the heart of kind of the intifada and all these bus-based suicide bombings in which, you know, a terrorist would get on the bus and then detonate themselves and, and kill a bunch of people. And riding buses in Israel was this really tense experience in which you would sit down and this person would get on the bus and you would have the split second of, do I trust that this is like a legitimate, you know, weirdo, or do I need to be very careful here? Do I shame this person? And what if it's not a terrorist? It's like a horrible kind of moral quandary to, for, for 14 or for any person, especially a 14 year old to deal with. So this is what I'm thinking about. And to distract myself, I start reading the little sign on the bus stop. And let me tell you, Stephanie, the M5 is amazing. First of all, you could text the M5 The M5 texts you back. The M5 tells you where it is in the city, how long, when will it be here? And it also tells you how many people are on the bus. What I'm saying here is that the M5 is like one of my most significant relationships now. I trust the M5 and I enjoy our friendship more than I do a lot of other interactions that I have with a lot of other people. So thank you, MTA. And I want to thank you for this extremely relatable content about the first time you discovered public transportation and joined the rest of us, us huddled masses, underground, above ground. Oh, underground, I, I don't do. That, that, <laughs> is a, that is a train too far. It is funny. The last time I was in Israel, I did mess up the bus. I was just there for an, a number of days. You've actually been here for a number of years. So, you know, we're on different levels. But I did get on a bus with Ben Cohen and we were sitting there and it turned out we had like nothing of what we were supposed to have. To, we, had, we were supposed to get a pass to get on the bus. And we were like, but we didn't know. Um, I was properly shamed by the bus driver. And then he was like, eh, American, you know, whatever. Speaking I, of Israel, Stephanie, I know that you have been, you're, you're a very <laughs> literate person. You read a lot. You moderate a lot of uh, book talks. 
with the Jewish Book Council. But these last couple of weeks, I have seen you more excited than I've seen you in a very long time about a particular volume that is right here on the desk in front of us. Kindly, kindly uh, introduce this literary masterwork. So this book came to me from a listener. Um, this was the card that accompanied it. The card read, Dear Stephanie, listening to the last couple of weeks of Unorthodox, I knew we needed to send you our favorite Grover book from Sarah from Cleveland. So Sarah from Cleveland sent me, honestly, something that changed my life as much as the M5 changed your life. It's a book called Grover Goes to Israel. Yeah. And it's part of the Shalom Sesame collection. <laughs> and so, okay, Grover Goes to Israel. Liel, tell me what is on the cover of this incredible book. Before I do, uh, <laughs> I, I would like listeners to close their eyes and, and imagine a book called Grover Goes to Israel and what they might expect to find on the cover Go ahead. This is a guided meditation. Close your eyes. Breathe deeply. If you said a freaking camel and a pita with falafel, you are absolutely correct. Grover, looking like he had just finished basic training with Givati, is uh, standing here holding a large, really like larger than his face pita with falafel. And uh, standing really <laughs> dangerously close to him is a, is a beatific looking camel. OK, but we will learn more about that camel inside. So here's how the book starts. Shalom means hello. Also, goodbye and peace. Well, we get to that in the end of the book. It is I, world traveler Grover, off on an adventure in the land of Israel. I go to the market at Machne Yehuda in Jerusalem. This is where he's eating the falafel. He is at Machne Yehuda. Look at this. This is a completely accurate rendering of that shuk. Yes, of course. <laughs> we Be see the because, fish Because shuk Machne Yehuda looks a lot like, you know, the 14th arrondissement in Paris with nice little chandeliers. No, this is this. Okay, well, you have your fishmonger right next to him. There's like a bunch of clothing just hanging on rods. Mm -hmm. And then he goes, he goes straight to the hotel to say a prayer. And he, here's Grover putting a note in the Western Wall alongside him many different. <laughs> there's a, a Hasidic guy with. Uh, that's a blue Muppet. On, there's, there's a blue Hasidic Muppet. Yeah. What sect are the blue Hasidim? <laughs> it is the, amazing. The, the blue verse. Um, and I will say that when she sees this guy, she says, Daddy, this yeah. one over here. Um, <laughs> because he's the only one. That's actually really interesting because he's he's not Grover. He's, he's not a Hasid. He's not wearing a talus and, and a Yeah, he's kippa, not green. And he's also not a soldier. It's This is really wild. Let me show you some other <laughs> things. He goes to the desert and climbs Masada. Phew! Yeah. By the way, the I'm sorry. Path. The, the, the previous uh, page is... The kibbutz in which the houses look exactly <laughs> like the home Luke Skywalker grew up in on Tatooine. They're like Star Wars mud huts. They're very nice. Well, okay. Then I have lunch in a tent with my friends, the Bedouins, and their camel, Amira. So we got the camel coming back. Grover is on birthright. This is Bedouin tent night. Yep. <laughs> Grover. And it's the next page, Grover making out with an Israeli soldier. <laughs> I mean, did they go there? No, he goes to swim in the Red Sea near Elad. He's getting a lot done. He's traversing geographical like distances. I, like, How long is he here for? I have so many questions. Where is I he staying? I got to tell you, it's a beautiful book, but I, th I think they missed a lot of opportunities to truly educate young readers about Israeli culture. I, I would have liked something like, you know, Grover doesn't understand. Maza, stand in line and wait your turn. Grover <laughs> keeps getting yeah. cut at the gelato place. Grover blown up by PLO. Blue felt everywhere. Oh, no. I was really scarred by the time I got cut so many times at the gelato place on Dizengoff. It was like, it's me. I'm doing something wrong here. I was like, I have to leave this country. Okay, and then it's time to go home. Shalom, Israel. Shalom also means goodbye. And this, I don't know if you recognize these two characters. These are Brosh and Avigail. They, they feature in other... Shalom Sesame books. They are his his sort of friends here in Israel. Good for Grover. 
for being a world traveler. Yeah. Join us next week on Oscar de Grouch Explains Israeli Politics. I honestly would watch that. Scram, like- BB, <laughs> would be the title of that book. BB Scram. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. Uh-huh. <laughs> We have actually like late breaking just over the transom news about one of our favorite topics. Yeah. And equally as ridiculous as Grover going to Israel is not ridiculous. It's the Genesis Prize, which really has got to be at this point the world's single stupidest prize. It is touted as the Jewish Nobel. Although, as we say on the show, the Nobel is the Jewish (laughs) Nobel. And over the years, such utterly irrelevant people who need no more publicity or have really achieved nothing in specific for the Jewish people, like Michael Douglas or Natalie Portman, who refused the award because, of course, they can't even get that right. Who won the award this year? I will say it's it's mostly just funny that they're like Michael Douglas. He needs the, he not only he needs the million dollar prize and the publicity. And I think Michael Bloomberg got it. Yes. Um So it's we're, we're you know, we have some we have some great uh, famous Jews who really done a lot for the Jewish people. <laughs> so okay, this year just announced Barbara Streisand is the winner. This is unbelievable. This is great. She's a Jewish egot now. Now that she has a Jewish Genesis Prize, so she's what is she a gigot? A gigot. A, a, a Jewgot. It's pronounced gigot. <laughs> She says she'll donate the $1 million prize to groups protecting environment, promoting women's health, combating disinformation, and aiding the people of Ukraine. There is no more divisive topic of conversation in this room, I feel, than Babs, who I feel is the single greatest overrated entertainer in the history of humanity. No one has been applauded more for doing less. It's just unbelievable. Another highly relatable take I, from I my colleague, my co-host, Leah Leibovitz. Um, I Again, love Babs. She clones her dogs and she has a doll museum in her I basement. I think Babs' this is the person we're current iteration and her current proclivities as like a very fabulously successful person should not negate or even reflect on the like obscene progress and advance, like the things she, her contributions for theater, for music, for Jewish women. But here's what I'll say. I want the Genesis Prize going to Leah Michelle for her role in Funny Girl, for what she's done, bring back the amazing Jewy theme, like this this just incredibly... For being the egomaniacal, overrated entertainer of this generation. You know who never Leo! won the Genesis Award? <laughs> The late rabbi, the late rabbi Lord Jonathan Saxon never won the Genesis Award for his service to the Jewish people. Adin Seinzel, who translated literally the entire Talmud, never got the award. So I think you should start your own counter Shimon award. Paris, no award. Okay, but was he in... Um... Was he in Meet the Fockers? No, he was not in Meet the Fockers. <laughs> rabbi Jonathan Sachs was not in Meet the Fockers. So yes, I guess our priorities are straight. But Stephanie, this is actually not the most controversial news item that we will share this week because there's one that surpasses it. Stephanie, take us to the front line of the Bagel Wars. I'm going to share a truly harrowing headline from CNN. The cream cheese stuffed bagel is here. Philadelphia cream cheese and H&H bagels, a New York-based bagel shop, are trying to please the carbohydrate and dairy-loving communities, just say Jews, <laughs> with a new and dubious spin on the stuffed crust pizza. This is the bagel stuffed with cream cheese. The bagel is filled with cheese after it is baked, making it more of a cream cheese bagel donut, if not in spirit, then at least in form. Thank you, CNN, for this brave reporting. This is the most insane thing I've ever heard. It's a bagel with cream cheese on the inside. 
Can I tell you why I absolutely, actually, genuinely love this? Surprise me, please. Okay. So first of all, objectively, obviously, this is Chilol Hashem, right? This is <laughs> this is a violation of God's name. This is unholy uh, because it is a bagel, you know, a cheese stuffed bagel donut, uh, which should not exist. However, as we also said on the show, the bagel at this point is arguably the world's least Jewish food stuff. Because if you could get something in the airport in South Dakota... It is no longer property of the Jewish people. We have bequeathed it to a grateful America. However, do you know the origins of this thing? Do you know why we have the cream cheese stuffed bagel? I want to know so little about this bagel that I have no idea where it comes from. So this this is comes, Frankenstein monstrosity. And this comes because in this here, New York City, anytime you order anything involving bread in any New York City eatery, and the person as much as toasts it, even if they don't put anything on the bagel, right? Because... There's then the Talmudic question of, well, well, then what is considered a sandwich? If they touch the bagel or the bread in any way, you're automatically paying almost 9% more. Enter a clever CPA who said, <laughs> what if we stuff the cheese in the bagel? It will save 9%. Why pay retail? It's it's genius. So this is designed to save customers money, basically. Yep. Wow. Yep. Wow. Or, or, or some marketer in Philadelphia, cream cheese is you know who's really cheap? Jews. So how about we just save them 9% by stuffing the cheese in the bagel? I don't know what... I, possibly anti-Semitic is what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm more moved by. Like this horror, this sort of genetic modification of something that I consider to be a truly pure object, the bagel, or the ingenuity behind a tax loophole. Like that's a Talmudic thing, right? Like how can we save a few bucks? Like I don't know which as a Jewish person compels me more. Well, if it helps you, they launched it. On tax day. <laughs> this is the nerdiest, most Jewish story ever. But speaking of new iterations of a classic, my favorite news story this week comes to us from JTA. Adam Brody to star as charming rabbi in upcoming Netflix comedy alongside Kristen Bell. So Adam Brody, who I literally call Seth Brody because mm -hmm. he's so immortalized in my brain and all Seth. of everyone's brains as Seth Cohen mm -hmm. from The O.C., He's going to play a charming rabbi uh, in an upcoming comedy. Like there's any other kind. I was going to say, like, it's a little <laughs> offensive. You don't have to tell me the rabbi's charming. So what's going on in, in this rom-com? Okay, so here's a little bit about the show. In the series, Belle plays an outspoken agnostic woman who falls in love with a charming rabbi played by Brody, totally upending his safe life plan. But I do want to read you, I would say, my favorite paragraph from this news report. Brody grew up in suburban San Diego and had a bar mitzvah. Belle who is not Jewish, <laughs> has appeared <laughs> in a range of hit shows and movies from Veronica Mars to Frozen to The Good Place. <laughs> I love that we, in JT, like we are identifying people as not I, Jewish. I, right, right. And I was like, <laughs> by the way, who is part of that minority of Gentiles in the world? You know, look, I, I have tremendous sympathy for both of these particular actors. And I always like anything starring a rabbi is great. I mean, just bring it on. I, I'm not going to be picky. But I really wish, and, and if this is still being written, and if you're listening to us right now, Hollywood, um, are you there, Hollywood? It's us, unorthodox. Um, I really wish that there would be some real attempts at actually grappling with faith. I mean, the last time I saw a rabbi on screen that I truly loved was the Ben Stiller character in Keeping the Faith. And part of what made this movie so great, aside from being completely hilarious, is the fact that you could actually feel what this person was dealing with, the theological questions, the communal questions. They weren't side notes and they weren't kind of, you know, gag lines. They're actually a fundamental part of the story and the drama. So 
Yeah, I think, look, in a, in a weird way, and this is a theme of our upcoming conversion episode, in a weird way, I think every relationship is an interfaith relationship because no two people are at the exact same spot on the faith kind of spectrum, even if they hail from, from the same tradition. So what a great idea and what a great opportunity to have this discussion. I just pray, no pun intended, that it be done actually thoughtfully. Well, what, I, how about that, I Hollywood? think it will because Real the show is being, most of us have. is being created by Erin Foster, who herself is sort of, you know, has been around Hollywood. She converted to Judaism at the end of 2019. Stephen Levitan, who was behind Modern Family, he's executive producing. So I actually do think this might be a really great example of like what it means to actually grapple with who you thought you would be, who you thought your, what you thought your life would look like. I don't know. I'm excited for this. I just hope they count the Omer on the show. <laughs> are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our Jewish guest this week is Natasha Feldman, a chef and food personality better known by her social media handle, her her nom de gram, at Nosh with Tosh. She and I sat down when she was in New York for the launch of her new cookbook, The Dinner Party Project. We talked about how food and family were always intertwined for her growing up and how she later used food to find her own community. She gives us some expert tips on throwing a successful and low stress dinner party. And I had a blast talking to her. So what are you doing here in New York? Well, my book came out on Tuesday. What is it called? The Dinner Party Project. I'm so excited because I've been following along Nosh with Tosh. That is your handle. That's your persona. That's your identity. Were you always Tosh? Am yeah. I saying that right? Like, yeah. are, do, 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 it's Nosh. Once you committed to it, were you like, no one can ever call me Natasha anymore? So the like, thing is, most people have always called me Tosh. Okay. Natasha feels very formal. It also feels like my Russian spy alter ego. So when you make Nosh part of your handle, are people like Nosh? Like, do people know? Is, are you coding yourself as Jewish? Does it, is Nosh no longer Jewish? Is Yiddish not Jewish? Like, is it so universal that everyone knows what it is? I thought when I first started doing it that Nosh was something that was in common vernacular and that it was like not something that I would ever have to spell. Yeah. Not something I was ever going to have to explain. Yeah. And it turns out that's a no. 
you're saying that we are a minority population. We, turns out <laughs> we are, in fact, a minority population. But I, I love to eat. I love to snack. I love to feed people. I'm like, I can't resist a nibble. You know, nobody should ever be even like the slightest bit hungry. I'm like a noshy little mouse. <laughs> and so when I was trying to think of a name, you know, I was like, taste with Tosh. Wrote this long list. And then like, I was like, what am I doing? It's Nosh with Tosh. Like, don't be a ding dong. And now here we are, the Dinner Party Project, a no-stress guide to food with friends. That's, I think, the thing I like most about what it is that you do and what you put out there is that it's so accessible and it's so much, I feel like you understand what I'm looking for. I'm like, I'm not trying to work too hard. I'm trying to do something really, really fun. And I like this idea, no-stress food with friends. That's what I want. I yeah. want no-stress, generally. <laughs> like, I don't know how much you can do beyond the food part, but like, it's community, it's family, it's friends, and it's food. And so has food always been central to your idea of community and gathering? Yes. Although I will say until I was an adult, I did not like to cook at all. Like you could not get me to stand in a kitchen for more than 15 minutes before I had like mega ants in my pants and had to go run off and do something else. It was, I didn't want to go to the farmer's market. I did not care about a Romanesco. I didn't want to see what was like fresh and local, did not understand really just watched my aunt and my mom and whoever was cooking, like, do the thing. And I was like, I can't wait to eat that. I can't wait to sit and I'm going to eat it and I'm going to love it. And this is religion. This is community. This is family, the like sitting down and eating part. And then when I flew the nest, I was like, oh, no, you have to feed yourself once you don't live at home, which is something that you'd think any human with a brain would realize before leaving their home, but did not happen. And I started cooking out of necessity. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is really fun. And then as I was practicing, I would have people over. And then I, you know, studied abroad and was like cooking for everybody. And then decided after that, I'm going to go to culinary school. Like I love cooking. I love feeding people and telling stories. And I sort of knew I was never going to work in a restaurant because I just do not have the temperament for that. But I really love this like food media space. And so that's sort of where I started worming my little body into. In culinary school, I like went to work in the morning, worked at a restaurant in the morning, did school in the afternoon, and then we'll go home and practice everything. And then we had all this food. And I was like, well, I guess we're going to start having dinner parties. And that was sort of like the genesis of the dinner party project, like right out of college. You know, it was like this collection of like kids working in the mail room and like at their first job, being an assistant, doing editing. The jobs where everybody just wants to take a crap on you all day long. And it was so nice to have that community at the end of the day and feel like we could all make each other feel like we were worth something. I feel like a lot of people have this idea of what a dinner party is. And it is like a stressful. (laughs) Yeah, you've got to get out your china. You have to polish your silver. The plates have to be warm. You better have a warming tray. Everything has to be served hot. And it's like the generations past in the mid-90s, Martha, and the rise of the, you know, celebrity chef. The top chef is like all fun and great, but it also like really discourages us from being sloppy as hell and having our friends over. And I wanted to say, you can be your sloppy ass self (laughs) and you can have your friends over and everyone's going to love you. And if your food is awful, that is still fine. Like you can have the messiest rat infested apartment (laughs) if you want. And you can have your laundry in a pile and you can make bad food and people are still going to have a really good time. Like that is the power of the dinner party. 
I love that. I'm going to open to a random page and we're going to talk about the recipe. This is fun game. Okay, crispy, crispy turkey thighs with caramelized onion jam. So, spoiler alert, I'm allergic to chicken. Okay. When I was a kid, I had eczema all the time. And when I was like 25, I saw an allergist and they were like, well, you know, you're not supposed to be itchy all the time. And I got an allergy test and I'm like, really allergic to chicken. But, you know, how many like roast chickens with schmaltzy potatoes and matzo balls? It's like, you know, it's everything. It's my life force. Yeah, it's what we do. Yeah. So I was like, well, that's interesting. (laughs) So there's no chicken in this book, mainly because like I don't want to recipe test it and I wouldn't be able to tell you what it tasted like. And I think turkey is a deeply underutilized protein. We have it like once a year, but you can get turkey thighs all year. Okay. And what I love about a turkey thigh, and obviously I'm biased because chicken is my enemy, <laughs> they're big. So like, it's not like you need a thousand like thighs per person. They're like nice, shareable. You can cut them up. I think turkey is a more flavorful protein it's like on juicier, its own. Right? Yeah. And it's super tender. And so I wanted to make something that was sort of a, a non-Thanksgiving-y turkey recipe because nobody ever thinks to make turkey. And I was like, give turkey a chance. I really like that. I want to go back to this chicken allergy because I once did one of those like fancy tests where you get like your your sensitivity is or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're, and the two things that were like high sensitivity were chicken and apples. And I was like, what kind of Jew can I be? Apples for Rosh Hashanah, chicken for like literally every day. I mean, how do you deal with your Jewish identity as a non-chicken eater? Well, it really threw me for a loop. Honestly, it was very upsetting. And especially as somebody who cooks for a living, the idea of like having to go somewhere and being like, no, sorry, I can't eat that. I can't try that. I can't experience this thing because my body will literally rebel (laughs) is quite a bummer. Although turkey stock is delicious you can easily make schmaltz out of turkey. So at, like at home, it's not a problem. It like really hasn't made that big of a difference. But out in the world, it basically means like I can never have anybody else's matzo ball soup. So what are some of your tips for someone who is throwing either their first or their hundredth dinner party? <laughs> so I think the first thing, no matter how good or bad of a cook you are, the dinner party has to meet you where you are. I have a lot of friends who want to bite off more than they can chew because they're just excited about the idea of hand-making pasta. (laughs) But if you're like a working person and you get off at six and you invited your friends over at seven, do not try to make that, even (laughs) if you can. Get down that attachment from the, yeah. Nobody wants to come over and see that you have a pasta attachment out, but you haven't (laughs) used it yet, you know? Like, I feel like especially being Jewish, like if I go show up at your house and there is not food anywhere and I don't know when there's going to be food. That's that's the worst. That's the worst case scenario. It like sets even though I've eaten lunch, you know, like five hours ago, no, and I'm not a, close to starving. it's an existential panic, yes. right? Where you're like, why am I here? When's my next meal? Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, if I can't see the food <laughs> yeah. and know when it's going to happen, I can't. I, I'm not present. I'm not having a good time. Like, you need to ideally have, like, the majority of the stuff done for your meal. Or you have to have ample snacks. AHS. Always have snacks. And if there's <laughs> snacks out and then dinner is, like, you know, way late or even destroyed. It doesn't matter because I have ingested food and now I am chill. Yeah. Even if it's like four bags of random chips, I don't care. I just want to see food and know I can put it in here. Yes. People are usually hungry by the time they arrive at the place they're having dinner. So I, yeah. And it sucks because you're invited over and you're like, someone's cooking, but you're like, but I'm really hungry right now. Yeah. And you can't, it's rude to be like, excuse me, can you put that in the oven immediately? I see it on top of the oven. It needs to go in the oven (laughs) right now. This is actually how this works. (laughs) But yeah, don't bite off more than you can chew. 
And I don't want people to round peg square hole anything. If if the dinner party that you have planned is not fitting in with the thing, change it. Like it's never too late to change your mind. It's never too late to keep your ingredients for tomorrow and be like, you know what? We're having Thai food tonight and everybody's still coming and it's going to be great, but I don't have the capacity for what I was planning and it's not going to go bad. It'll be in the fridge. Maybe I'll even do it this weekend and we're having Pad Thai. You know, people just want to hang out. They want to have a good time. If you're stressed out, it's bad news bears. So always have snacks. Don't bite off more than you can chew. You know, it's interesting because we do have a built-in dinner party, right? Weekly. Mm-hmm. Shabbat. I don't, I, I will fully admit, Shabbat dinner is something I really want to start to do. Like, my dream is like, on Friday nights, there's such an interesting mix of people over. And and I'm just like, I don't know when that's happening for me. <laughs> but I, I'd like to get there. I think most Jewish people have a complicated relationship to actual religion and the religious elements of Judaism. But I feel, And the chicken. And the chicken. But I feel very, very strong about like, Jewish culture. And I do believe that the dinner party is my Shabbat. And I think that it is something that's really beautiful about the Jewish religion and Jewish culture that I don't really understand why it isn't something that has become more and more secular. The thing that we need in this world is for the Shabbat to get bigger and bigger and bigger and for more people to really feel like you're connecting one-on-one rather than like, you know, in an angry text battle with your coworker or whatever. And I think like the secular dinner party is the Shabbat of the people. And that idea of like sitting down, feeling like you can just fully be yourself. It's just like an, a time for you to like be with your people and to bring in new people and to feel really generous in spirit. And I think I thought while I was writing this a lot about how for me, like this is my interpretation of religion, like the dinner party project and doing it regularly and having it be something that's a part of your community and then your friend's community and become something that's like a bigger, bigger, bigger spider web is like my hope for the book. Well, I'm excited to be part of the dinner party project. What's the most Jewish thing in this book? The brisket. <laughs> Break it down. Where it's, where do you stand? How do you, where do, what, what direction do we go in for this? It's my great, great grandmother's recipe, obviously. Amazing. And it must be seared. If you put a brisket in the oven and you haven't seared it, mortal sin. Right. We have to, you got to get that sear. You got to add that flavor boost. Then it has to go out of the pan and into the pan has to go all the vegetables and the red wine so that you can deglaze the bottom of the pan and get all that yummy flavor, reduce the wine a little. So it's, you know, not like sometimes when you eat brisket, you can taste the cheap wine. I'm like, no, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want it to cook down a little first. And then you add all of that back into the brisket. So the vegetables are, you know, the the classics, the onions, the carrots, the garlics. That goes into whatever it is that you're cooking your brisket in, your high-sided roasting dish or whatever it is. In with the vegetables goes beef broth. And then I'm a dried fruit person. So it gets apricots and prunes. Interesting. And then the prunes and the apricots add like a, you know, a lot of people do brown sugar, but brown sugar is a very simple flavor. It's very knowable. And I think that like the complexity of sugars that are within dried fruit are way more interesting and they add a lot more depth to the brisket. So that for me is like the thing that Mm -hmm. I think separates my favorite briskets from all other briskets. And then it must be cooked on one day, held overnight in the fridge, and then sliced and reheated the next day. Interesting. Okay. I think the rested brisket, where it gets to like sit whole and absorb as much of the liquid and become as tender as possible before you slice it and letting it fully cool so that when you break into it, you're not like releasing any of the excess moisture is like 
the most fundamental building block to the world's best brisket. If you don't believe me, you can also ask Molly. I always thought that the reason you did brisket in advance was to, like, get it out of the way, like, four days before Passover. Yeah. But they're actually, you're saying there's actually, like, a culinary value yes. in doing that. It just, like, is kismet that it works out both ways. Obviously, making things in advance is something I talk a lot about in the book because you want to have friends over. You can make the salad dressing a day before. You can make a cake two days before. Like, all of these little things that you can do are going to make your future self really happy when it's time to have people over. More importantly, a lot of things as they sit increase in their the identity of whatever that dish is. So the brisket gets more briskety. Soups get more soupy. All the flavors have time to sort of meld together and kind of become one. And brisket, I think, is like best day three, day four. Interesting. Okay. And then my favorite is brisket whole in the fridge overnight, sliced the next day, reheated in the hotter oven so that the Jew reduces and you get like little crispies on top of the brisket. And then the next day, when it's in the fridge, sitting in the juice is already sliced. The day after, it becomes brisket pasta. And that Say more. Is, is that just pasta with brisket in it? Yes. Wow. So what kind you, of what kind of noodles what are we talking? Well, it's gotta be it's gotta have some nooks and crannies. Okay. You know, whatever you whatever you like, but I want I want sauce in holes. <laughs> that's that's what I want. Okay. <laughs> You, Pick you your heard, poison. Yes, I, love, I like okay. a rigatoni. That's okay. my, but anything with nooks and crannies is gonna is is fine. Brisket pasta. Yeah. I think we're we're taking this to our listeners. We we want you to try brisket pasta. You should also check out the Dinner Party Project by Natasha Feldman, or just follow along at Nosh with Tosh. You all know how to spell Nosh. <laughs> Tosh is spelled T A S H. <laughs> Natasha Tosh. It's so nice to meet you, and thank you for being a guest on Unorthodox. It was totally my pleasure. I love this. Right, it's time for the mailbox. The first letter, Stephanie, it's all you. It is quite literally all it's me. It's Cohen's all the way down. Here's the letter. I am totally verklempt to realize Stephanie's New Jersey family is the Cohen's that I know. I raised my three kids in the same town as the Cohen's. I've been a fan of Unorthodox for years. I feel like I know all of you from just listening. Love you all. Good luck, Mark. Keep up the great work, Liel and Stephanie. Michelle K. Schneck. Unorthodox superfan. First of all, I love the name Michelle K. Schneck. It's just a great name. And second of all, The Coens That I Know is a fantastic title for a book. I think you should write it. This the is Coens your That I Know. This is, this is your total <laughs> memoir about, about your in-laws and their wonderful family. We now have a longish, serious, and, and quite moving letter that I want to share now because I think it's a great, almost teaser trailer for our annual conversion episode, which if you've been listening, you know, is this show's Oscar, Super Bowl, World Series, all rolled into one are kind of uh, one of the highlights of the unorthodox year. And this touches on a lot of the issues that we're going to talk about on this year's conversion episode in just two weeks. Hey, unorthodox, I'm an aspiring Jew by choice and wanted to share with you my very first challah and frankly, my first bread making attempt ever. 
Listening to your episode with Bethra Kanadi when she talks about Hala being her mind's quiet time inspired me, though I'll admit my experience was slightly less relaxed. That makes two of us. I wanted to pose a question to you all about conversion as well. Maybe you've heard similar things throughout your conversion episode interviews. I am 27 and I was raised with zero religion and I had no attachments to any faith outside of some resentment towards Christianity from experience throughout young adulthood. But I love the way Judaism places so much emphasis on the here and now, offers a million ways to ritualize life and make ordinary moments holy. I love the intellectual honesty that exudes from every book I have read so far about Judaism. I always desired a deeper connection to faith, but seeing as I couldn't honestly commit myself to blind faith in Christ, I didn't see that ever happening for me until Judaism. However, there is a guilt that comes with not wanting to convert to Orthodox Judaism. My fiancé is Jewish and was raised loosely Reform, though recently we've both become more interested in dabbling in observance and have been attending a conservative synagogue. In my mind, if he eats a BLT, he's of course still Jewish and could go about that journey in his own way. But if I eat pork, struggle with awkward vulnerability of praying aloud, let alone don't plan to cover my hair once I get married or go to the mikvah every month, etc., am I just converting to the parts of Judaism that I pick and choose? I know many people, especially in the United States, would welcome me into the fold despite not converting Orthodox, but there is a level of what I guess you could call cognitive dissonance about this. I want to do it right and respect the tradition I've come to love, but if I'm not willing to go all in in terms of observance, how can I come to terms with not feeling like a fraud? Or should there be a higher standard that converts hold themselves to in terms of observance? And if so, what are they? Thank you, Anonymous. Wow. I'm stealing that phrase, aspiring Jew. Um, because I because that's what too, we all are. I want to be yeah. an aspiring Jew. I love it so much. Um, this letter was too good not to share now, but we're going to wait to answer it until our conversion episode in two weeks. If you have thoughts for this letter writer or have grappled with this or similar questions yourself or want to share your own conversion questions or fears or hopes, call us or write us. You can send emails and voice memos to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a message on our listener line at 914-570-4869. J.Crew, we are so excited to bring you another installment, the best yet, the best yet, of our series Across the Jew SA, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. Every month, as you know, because you've been listening, we travel to the most remote parts of America, to everywhere across this beautiful country, to meet the Jews who live, well, outside of what we usually think of as large Jewish communities in this beautiful nation. And this month, our producers, Robert Scaramuccia and Corinne Waller, traveled to the main stage, as we call it here, Portland, Maine, to bring us a story about how Jewish immigrants made a home in Maine and how Jews today are helping new immigrants make a home there too. Have a listen.
probably heard the blessings over Shabbat candles before. You might have also heard the Adhan, the Muslim call to prayer. But have you ever heard them both at one dinner in Maine? I'm unorthodox producer Quinn Waller, and a few weeks ago, producer Robert Scaramuccia and I traveled to Portland, Maine to see what was up with the Jewish community there. And what we learned was that the best way to learn about this community was by watching it break bread with another community. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a deli there Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But is a man of Shepherds down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for locks in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the USA In April of 2023, Portland was home to one of Maine's first combination Shabbat dinners and iftars, the traditional meal that Muslims eat at the end of the day during the month-long fast of Ramadan. It was hosted by the Jewish Community Alliance of Southern Maine and the Greater Portland Immigrant Welcome Center. Events like these are part of how Portland's Jewish community connects to its traditions and to its neighbors. Maine's Jews found a home here over 100 years ago. This is the story of how they've helped make it a home for newcomers today and how this work helps them feel deeply Jewish. So let's go to dinner. Here we go. Even if you may have heard the Shabbat blessings before, it's a new experience for some. My name is Akles Ahmed. I'm originally from Sudan, Darfur. And the first Shabbat prayer that we did, it was from the heart. And like that first prayer just brought everybody to be like, oh, we needed that. Like I needed that. So I just felt a sense of community right away. And uh, people are breaking fast together. People are praying together. People from all different backgrounds. The dinner was in this big room at the Jewish Community Alliance with over 100 people, some bareheaded, some with kippahs, and some with hijabs, sitting around tables of shish kebabs and kosher meat. The JCA is Portland's combined Jewish Federation, JCC, and Family Services Program. We spoke to Molly Kern-Rolls, the JCA's executive director, about why they worked to plan this dinner. A lot of us have felt like we get together with interfaith groups, and in particular with the Muslim community, at times of real tragedy. We're always reaching out to say, I'm so sorry I heard about this shooting, or I'm so sorry I heard about this racist attack. To have the opportunity to say, yes, we will stand in solidarity with one another when we need to, and also we want to befriend one another. We want to get together and celebrate and and have really happy times too. That's a very important thing, I think, for us to build friendships and to get to to know each other in a positive way and not have this constant sense of needing to react to what those who want to do us harm are kind of calling the tune, maybe. If you ask some people in Maine, a new Mainer is anyone who came here after Maine became a state in 1820. But in the past few decades, new Mainer has become the term for the most recent immigrants to the state many of them from Somalia or elsewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. As you might imagine, they haven't always had the warmest welcome. A week before we visited, a neo-Nazi group from Massachusetts marched in front of the Greater Portland Immigrant Welcome Center with banners reading, Defend White Communities. The hope for this dinner, which was planned long before that demonstration, was to emphasize the common values and goals between the new Mainers of today 
and their Jewish counterparts from earlier eras of immigration. Over hummus, falafel, and Azerbaijani desserts, new Mainers and old Mainers, whether Jewish or Gentile, talked. The Immigrant Welcome Center co-hosted this dinner. Reza Jalali, its executive director, was pretty happy with the turnout. We brought people of different races, different religions, different ethnicities, different sexual orientations together because to me that's, that's the magic of America. When we come together, when we respect each other and respect the differences and get along, basically. So this is really the vision of America that I love so much and I want to see more. Reza is an immigrant himself and feels like his work at the Welcome Center has brought him full circle. I came as a refugee and I'm helping other refugees. Because when I came, there were so many doors closed to me. And part of what we do is open the doors, remove or lower barriers that new Mainers face. And the whole idea is we want to elevate new Mainers and help them to feel at home, help them to feel belonged. It's good for them, it's good for us. Maine needs uh, motivated young immigrants, and immigrants need to find a place to live in safety and dignity. The JCA has taken on some of this work through their role as a highest affiliate, resettling 167 recent immigrants since January of 2022. For some of Maine's Jews, helping new Mainers find a home here is one way that they feel deeply Jewish. Hayas is the world's oldest refugee resettlement program. It started out resettling Jews, hence its original name, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. But about 20 years ago, it began assisting non-Jewish refugees as well. Here's Molly again. Mark Hetfield has spoken really movingly, director of Hayas, about the idea that one of the ways that we live our values at this point is not by resettling people because they're Jewish, but by resettling them because we are Jewish. For a long time, the JCA was Portland's institutional connection to the Jewish Federations of North America and its JCC. But recently, they also became a highest affiliate, something that excited some members of Portland's Jewish community. So many people, when we announced we were going to do this, called me, many of them from this room today, um, to say, you know, my grandmother was resettled by highest, or I myself as a child was resettled by highest. So it has a tremendous personal connection for folks. My parents are both Holocaust survivors, and I was born in a displaced persons camp. I came here with my family at the end of 1949, and Hayes brought us over. This is Abraham Peck, a research professor of history at the University of Southern Maine. I think what JCA has done has shown what Judaism is all about, that you welcome the stranger, and that's why we're here in this respect. And when you welcome the stranger, you might find out that their story isn't so different from yours after all. My name is Sam Zager. I'm a, a physician and also a state representative here in Maine. This is a magnificent event. There's so much about this season, I think, in Jewish terms that where you know we, if we have a seder, for instance, and we we say you know, let all who are hungry come and eat. It's a very inclusive sentiment, and I think that there are many people in this room who would consider themselves descendants of people who have either fled atrocities or some sort of form of oppression or outright slavery. And an event like this where we can come together and find our common ground really means a lot to folks. And so it's, it's wonderful to be here. There's this thing in Maine that to be a Mainer, your grandparents have to have been born there. But we heard something different at this dinner, something broader. 
Yeah, I think to be a Mainer is to welcome somebody, is to say, what can I do uh, to welcome you here? This is Mana Abdi, Maine's first Somali-American state representative. Maine can be challenging for a lot of people. So I think when I see a new person, my first thought is I hope you're settling in. And how can I welcome you into my community? I, I think that would be uh, what Mainer is to me. This was a common refrain at the Shabbat Iftar dinner. There are a lot of people in Portland who are working to offer something that's hard to find anywhere. Down-home neighborliness. Whether you're originally from Sudan or Somalia or the New York area, like Sam. For me, what, what being, a, being in, in Maine is, not being from Maine, um, is, is I get to be part of this bite-sized, very diverse, very thriving community. So I, I really, really like it. It's, it. It kind of, in some ways, almost reminds me of the way in Israel, People seem to know each other through just a few degrees of separation and uh, often many, many different ways. And Maine is very much like that. While in Portland, we learned that back when Jews first came into the city in the early 1900s, they elected a few Jewish city council members until the Protestant majority redesigned the city government and pushed those councillors out of office. Being Jewish then and Muslim now or non-Christian in America at any time, really, there's pushback against your identity, your values, your neighborhood. It's at dinners like these where you can find new friends to lock arms with. And sometimes, those friends are the people you didn't even expect to show up at dinner. Oh my God, is that the governor? You gotta go talk to her. I'm Janet Mills, and I'm the uh, governor of the great state of Maine. Why are you here tonight? I heard there was good food. No, um, honestly, it's an opportunity to come together as a community to talk about religious differences and commonalities as well. I, I think it's so important that we sit together, eat together, feast together, fast together, be together, talk together. When you drive into Maine on I-95, you see these big welcome signs. For years, they've said, Maine the way life should be. When Janet Mills became governor, she changed the signs. The sign now says, welcome home. Welcome home, which means if you've been here and you're come, left and you're coming back, welcome home. If you've never been here before, welcome home. If you haven't been here but you want to come here, welcome home. Come on down. So let's zoom out for a second. How did Maine become a home to Jews in the first place? Maybe you've heard the classic story of Jewish immigration to America. Jews go through Ellis Island and end up staying in New York, making homes in Brooklyn or the Lower East Side. Some traveled a little further along the Eastern Seaboard, maybe to Boston or Philadelphia. But in the early 1900s, there were some Jews that came to New York or Boston and thought, you know, this is just too warm. The number one common factor among Jews who landed in New York and found their way to Maine is they all came from northern parts of Europe. Some of them explicitly, and I suspect all of them at some subconscious level, were looking for a climate that felt like home. This is David Friedenreich, a professor of Jewish studies at Colby College. We met him on Commercial Street in Portland, near where Hasidic, Lithuanian, and Polish Jews first set up their lives and businesses. You can still see the facade of Clayman's bottles. 
miscellaneous bottles of you name it. But there were nice bottles. People wanted bottles. They went there. Along with Clayman Bottles, Portland's Jews founded furniture stores and clothing shops. At one point, there was even enough demand to sustain six kosher butchers and three Orthodox synagogues, one each for the Lithuanian Jews, the Polish Jews, and the Hasidic Jews. There was so much Jewish activity that Portland earned the nickname the Jerusalem of the North. But Jerusalem has never been a home to just the Jews, and it's the same in Portland. Maine's Jews made a home here right alongside other immigrant groups. As we go up the street, we're going to move out of the commercial warehouse area into the residential area. This was the original immigrant neighborhood, relatively poor housing stock. And in fact, if we go far enough up, you'll still see some housing that remains in relatively poor quality and continues to be home to new raiders today. David gave us a tour of Old Jewish Portland, walking us by one old synagogue that now houses an architectural firm and dropping us off at another, Etz Chaim. Etz Chaim sits at the top of a hill that looks down on what used to be the Jewish commercial hub and what is now home to Heritage Seaweed and OMG Cannabis, among other recent businesses. Etz Chaim shares its building with the main Jewish museum. Welcoming the museum into their building was one way this synagogue held on downtown, while others moved elsewhere or shut their doors. We spoke to their rabbi, Gary Berenson, and he told us a bit about the kind of Jewish home that he remembers from his childhood. Beside the Jews were the Italians, and they also were accompanied by the Irish. And my father grew up hand-in-hand with the Italian people here. He spoke a little Italian. And they spoke a little Yiddish. So it was, uh, it was very interesting. They all got along. There was no anti-Semitism. There was no, um, you know, I'm better than you. We were all immigrants back then. It was a good feeling to grow up in that. Nancy Davidson, the curator of the Maine Jewish Museum, whose grandmother was born in Portland, reflected on how things have changed. I would say that there was maybe 60 or 70% of the retail stores were owned and run by Jewish people. And now, if you ask me to name five, I don't think I could. Old Jewish Portland and its particular version of home is more of a memory at this point. Those six kosher butchers we mentioned earlier, none of them are in business anymore. Nowhere in the entire state of Maine is there a kosher butcher, as far as we can tell. Rabbi Gary said his cousin, also named Gary Berenson, ran the last one. It's been out of business for 20 years. The decline in kosher butchers mirrors the decline of the city's oldest synagogues. While there are still reform and conservative shuls and a Chabad presence in Portland, Etz Chaim is the only remaining historically Orthodox synagogue that has its own building. The shul has also made adjustments, welcoming more interfaith families and instituting mixed gender seating. Men came upstairs, women came downstairs, and we lost a few members because of that, because they really wanted to stay in strictly orthodox. But uh, we gained so much more than we lost, and we were very, very fortunate that people wanted to sign on. And so today, from where we were before, we've never been busier as a synagogue. We have more than 300 families. But what do you do with a home that's too big for its inhabitants, but still has memories, meaning, and a solid foundation? Shari Tefila was one of those three original Orthodox synagogues downtown. 
1955, they moved out of downtown to Portland's Woodford's neighborhood, building this beautiful mid-century structure. Fast forward a few decades and its membership numbers were down. So they made plans to rent a room from a conservative shul down the street and sold their building to a development company that planned to demolish it. But then a local nonprofit stepped in and offered a way to keep the building alive. Members of the congregation who didn't want to see their building turned to rubble matched the nonprofit's funds and bought out the developers in 2016. After three months of construction, the old shul's doors opened and... Welcome to Portland Community Squash. When you walk into Shari Tefila's building today, you can still see faded outlines of Stars of David and light still shines in through a wooden menorah designed into the huge front window. But beneath that window, there's no longer a prayer hall. We're underneath the you know, cathedral ceiling of the synagogue. And to get these courts into this space, we had four inches to spare in all four corners of the hall. So uh, it, was, it was a tight fit. That's Barrett Takesian, one of the founders of Portland Community Squash. PCS is an organization centered around, yup, squash, which, if you're not familiar, is an indoor sport played with a racket where you try to bounce a ball off a wall and past your opponent who is standing right next to you. We're here because we wanted to see how what was once a home for Jews became a home for everyone. PCS is this squash-based community made up of Portlanders from 26 different countries of origin who speak 17 different languages. Many of the people here are recent immigrants, often from sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia. Some of them moved into the same dense downtown housing that Jewish immigrants once lived in. And now, some of these new Mainers are playing and learning in Jews' old houses of worship, making friends in a space that Jews built and keeping that community space alive. We visited PCS over spring break, so there were a bunch of kids there playing squash and kind of just hanging out. My name is Hafso, and I'm 13 years old. My name is Siham. Hello, my name is Soda. Hi, I'm Miriam. Hi, I'm Soleil. Hi, I'm Yusri. Hi, I'm Ren. I'm 12, and I'll be 13 in whenever August is. Did these kids know that this place used to be Congregation Shari Tefila? I did not know this place was a synagogue until maybe two years ago I figured it out. Because, like, I saw the symbol, and I'm not Jewish, so I don't really understand what it is. I found out a week ago when I asked Kelsey, I saw the faded star of David on the door. And I was like, oh, what's that? And she was like, oh, yeah, this place used to be a synagogue. Like, I would look at the door and I'd be like, wow, this place used to be a synagogue. I actually thought this place, like, used to be a school. And then after, like, um, I knew it was related to like Judaism. I also, like, researched about it, and I've, like, seen pictures of synagogues, but, like, I've never actually, like, been in a form one. Well, I have, I guess, now. Be nice to see what it looked like before everything got built in, like, everything got changed and painted over. I'd like to see what it looked like, which I never really got to see. So some of them didn't know, not initially. But playing squash here, they've been exposed to something new. There was one squash player, Ren, who was the only Jewish kid among the group we hung out with. Ren's also the child of David, our Portland tour guide from earlier. 
the synagogue here used to have a mikvah. It's out back. And instead of actually still having the mikvah there after it fell apart, PCS now stores basketballs there. And so it can be weird sometimes hearing like, hey, go grab a basketball from the mikvah. When that's not what I associate with the mikvah at all. Also, it's been long enough since the synagogue was here. I don't really think of it that way anymore. So this synagogue is no longer a synagogue, but it's still a place for a community to gather. It preserves some of what used to exist downtown. Instead of the Italians and the Jews and the Irish, it's the Sudanese and the Jews and the Ugandans playing squash in an inherently Jewish space. From what we saw, Portland is a city that prides itself on its openness, a community where people try to learn about their neighbors. And when you think about how you make friends with your neighbors, sometimes it starts with your kids playing together. And sometimes it starts with an invitation to dinner. When we were at the Shabbat Iftar dinner, we also spoke to Rabbi Jared Sachs, who you heard make Kiddush at the very beginning of this story. I'm Jared Sachs. I'm the rabbi at Congregation Beth Ham in South Portland. It's really powerful to be among a diverse community and recognize our commonality. Um, in, in the world in which we're living right now, there's so much that's about how we're different from others. And I think opportunities like this remind us that the spark of the divine is in each one of us and it's the same in each one of us. It's our task to figure out how to find that and create more peace in the world. What we saw at this dinner was one picture of the future of Maine, where there was halal food being prepared in the kitchen of the Jewish Community Alliance. It might not be like the old days, when there were six kosher butchers and Jews spoke a little Italian and the Italians spoke a little Yiddish, but as Molly, JCA's executive director, told us, the changing landscape of Jewish Maine has pushed people to be more creative in how they approach Jewish life. The contours of the community, the practices of the community have in many instances changed, but the depth of commitment and the the way that Jewish life and Jewish thought is animating people is still really, really real on the ground. This may not be what every Jew in America is looking for out of their Jewish life, but Jewish Mainers, the people who have explicitly chosen to be Jewish in Maine, or Portland at least, seem pretty happy with their situation. Some of them feel most Jewish by helping refugees. Others feel most Jewish when they're lighting Shabbat candles with their families. And some of them feel most Jewish when they're out in the natural beauty of Maine. Let's go back to David Friedenreich, our Portland tour guide. We asked him when he felt most Jewish in Maine. Passover just ended. Every morning during Yontif, I got into my hiking clothes and I headed out my door for a four-mile round-trip loop that took me along the Brzezomskit River. And as I walked, I davened. I've done this route enough times by now that I can get to the Amidah the moment I hit a gorgeous waterfall. And seventh day of Pesach, unlike the first day, the water had gotten low enough that I was able to scramble out into the middle of the river and daven my Amida in the waterfall. And then I continue on my way back, reciting Hallel, and then show up at synagogue for the Torah service and Musaf and the ability to be with a community of people who are all just really happy to be there. 
to have the ability to experience the kind of tradition and culture and religious life that means so much to me on my own terms with other people who appreciate and respect the differences that we have among us. That's deeply meaningful to me personally. The number of people who say, wait a minute, there are Jews in Maine? There are plenty of Jews in Maine. There have been Jews in Maine since before Maine was a state. Jewish life in Maine is thriving. It doesn't look like Jewish life in Manhattan. It doesn't look like Jewish life in Montana. It is its own distinct thing. And for those of us who embrace it, it's exactly what we're looking for. For Mazel Tovs this week, we are all foregoing our collective Mazels to feature the amazing, touching, and just so charming Mazel Tovs that we heard on a recent live show at Moriah Congregation in Deerfield, Illinois, where we had such a blast. Here are the dear people of Deerfield. My name is Lisa Newman. To my son Joshua Mazeltov for finishing college a quarter early. Stanford. I'm so proud of you. Your curiosity and your intellect push me in ways that I've never been challenged before. You're kind, you're loving, you have a great sense of humor. I'm so proud. Um, my heart is so full for you. I love you. I'm Perry Hoffman. Uh, when I moved to the Chicago area from Wisconsin, my father and his friends, and Joel's father, who here I tried to get him up here, have kept our um, parents and beyond Jewish Stock Investment Club, the Ideal Investment Club, going for 50 years. <laughs> 50. Yeah, Mark Harrison, I went to camp uh, 50 plus years ago with Joel. <laughs> okay. My younger son, Jacob, is graduating in engineering. If anybody has a job for him, mechanical engineering. <laughs> And my older son, Alex. Alex, stand up. <laughs> Alex is getting married in June. Hi, my name is Peleg, and um, my son is actually uh, Jacob's uh, roommate, and he's also graduating. Uh, this, uh, uh, they do, so that, that's one mazel tov. Um, and the other one is this week, Israel is celebrating its 75th birthday, and a mazel tov to the state of Israel. So in a very Jewish way, Joel is my uncle and David Rannis was my grandfather. <laughs> and my mazel tov is to my son Zev. So, Sari Winnick. My son Zev turned 16 last week and got his driver's license. Oh. I'm Gabby Peretz and my granddaughter is graduating eighth grade. So I wanted to uh, give her a mazel tov for that. Karen. No, sorry, Rebecca. Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca. <laughs> Don't tell her I say that. <laughs> I'm Mindy Bapa. Mazel tov to our daughter, who turns 34 tomorrow. And I'd like to say mazel tov to Hallie and Michael Rosenberg, whose daughter recently became engaged. And I don't know Joel. 
<laughs> my name is Alan Frankel. I'd like to uh, offer a mazel tov to my son-in-law, Mike Sofer, who teaches high school at Oak Park River Forest High School and started digging into the history of a Nazi who was discovered to be an employee of that school in the 1980s and, and traced that history back to this guy's background in Germany and wrote a book about it, which is uh, being published by the University of Chicago Press. I'm Meredith Kirschenbaum. I'm doing a mazel tov for my grandfather, Jeremy Rosenau. He turns 90 this week and is having his bar mitzvah next month. Hello. I'm Leo Baum. This is a mazel tov for my dear cousin, Sheppy, who just got a job in Chicago and he couldn't be happier. So mazel tov to him. He's working with young athletes in the city. All right, that's our show for today. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibovitz. It's pronounced Leibovitz. <laughs> we are produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, and Daron Rusquet. Administrative support from the wonderful Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. You can follow Unorthodox on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for Unorthodox Podcast. We have awesome swag, including a tie-dyed Stephanie baseball hat and a Liel bucket hat. Shop your heart out at tabletstudios.com. Esther Werdiger designs our episode art. Jenny Rosbrook designed our new logo and all our swag. And the band Golem is responsible for our theme song. Steve Barton composed our mailbox theme and our Across the USA theme music. As always, send us emails and voice memos at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a message at 914-570-4869. You can send us Sesame Street books and other gifts at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York 10001. Thanks for sticking with us, J. Crew. We promise a lot more fun to come. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends. Like Yeehaw. an upspeak, right? Upspeak? Yeah. Shalom, nice, like friends. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends. All right. Shalom, friends. <laughs> Shalom, friends. This is Grover. <laughs> um. The universe is leading Grover podcast. <laughs>